Welcome to the Sunday evening service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where the Bible is opened and explained. Christians are encouraged and Christ is lifted up. Thank you for joining us and may your hearts be blessed as God's word is taught. And now, enjoy this message from Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you, Jessica, for that great reminder that we are to find in him our refuge and strength. I know you have your Bibles tonight, or at least an electronic copy of that, a digital version of the Bible. Please go to James. We're in an evening series in the book of James. I've entitled this message tonight, The Triumph of Mercy. The Triumph of Mercy. James chapter 2 is where we'll focus our study tonight. Always good to see you on Sunday. My heart is always encouraged by the, just the mutual Really, the mutual joy that comes when we get together as believers, encourage one, exhort one another, and so much the more as the day of Christ's return approaches, the triumph of mercy. We'll read these uh, first 13 verses in James chapter 2. We're uh, now, of course, embarking on this study of the book of James. I love how practical James is. He, (laughs) as J. Vernon McGee used to say, Uh, It's where the rubber meets the road. That's where we live, and so we're thankful for these practical truths. And tonight, we look at the subject of favoritism or prejudice. And James brings it up because it was a problem in his church in Jerusalem. It's a problem now. He's addressing tribes that are scattered abroad. And uh, these are mainly, of course, Hebrews are coming to Christ and being spread abroad by the point of the spear. Persecution has led them to just disperse all over the then-known world, carrying with them the truth of the gospel that Jesus is alive. We studied that just a couple Sundays, last Sunday. But James wants them to know that doctrine doesn't mean much unless life is, is part of that. Your practice matters. Amen? If, if, if your life doesn't match your message, it's okay to say Jesus is alive, but if he's not alive in us, that's a a different story indeed, and so I uh, want us to really focus in tonight on the first 13 verses of chapter 2. We'll back up and review just a moment, but let's read these verses together. You follow as I'm reading in James chapter 2. My brethren, he's speaking to, of course, the beloved brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons, favoritism. Uh, for if they're coming to your assembly... I would uh, just remind you there weren't really lots of, by this time, lots of built edifices and churches. Often they would rent from synagogues and use that facility not on Saturday, but a Sunday as, uh, as a New Testament believers met on the first day of the week. If there comes to your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him, that weareth the fine or gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou down here in a good place, and say to the poor man, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges with evil thoughts? Hearken or listen, my beloved brethren, how sweet James is to call his church family beloved brethren. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich? in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him. But ye have despised the poor. We learned a little bit about that word this morning. Esau despised the birthright and blessing. You've despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seat? 
Did they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Paul has, or excuse me, James has in mind, of course, the sin of prejudice or favoritism. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and do ye, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that showed no mercy. And mercy rejoices against judgment. Or we could say, uh, the triumph, mercy triumphs over prejudice, favoritism, and a critical spirit. This is very convicting. You think that James had been visiting churches locally in our day. I wonder, do churches here in Henry County have any trouble with this? Favoritism, prejudice. <laughs> Don't all answer at once. Is this still a problem in the churches today? Certainly was in, Paul, in James's day, and it is in our day as well. But reminding you of where we've been in our text since it's been a minute, we start in James chapter 1, obviously, and and there James says, your life definitely needs to match. You need to have God's work in your heart and life. And so how are you doing? How's God changing you? And James digs deeper than just that little thing we say when we come to church. How are you, brother? How are you, sister? Doing great. Thank you for asking. Pray for us. He wants to go a little deeper than that. And James chapter 1, he asks us, so how are you doing in the area of enduring trials with joy? I've been doing with that, practically. Has you, uh, have you been, been enjoying? He's not asking us to enjoy the trials, but are you enduring with joy and hope? What about decision-making, verse 5? Are, are, are you lacking in wisdom? Have you been going to him and saying, Lord, I, I need your help with this one. I need your help with everything. And so have you been doing that? And then verse 13 and 21, how have you been responding to temptation and sin. Have you, have you been having victory? Wouldn't it be great if our Christian life would be that pointed and in the foyer or wherever we meet one another Sunday or during the week? How is God changing you? How is the life of Christ changing your decision making, your response to temptation, your victory over it, your wisdom? And what about anger and bitterness? Verses 26 there. Have you been angry in your speech because James is pretty pointed, isn't he? Chapter 126, if any man, person among you seem to be religious, do you seem to be religious? And you don't bridle your tongue, self-control, your speech, well then you're deceiving your own heart. And it's not my words here. He says, if that's true of you, if your speech is hateful and vengeful, your religion is, well, it's worthless. Wow. Uh, James gets right down to it. If you seem to be religious, but your tongue tells another story, well, then your religion is vain. And, and people can't tell the life of Christ that is living in you. And so he exposes us to these practical truths, and then we get, of course, to chapter 2. Now, I, I love the fact that James wants us, and we'll see this as the theme through the book, wants us to live our faith. Faith 
without works is absolutely worthless and dead. I was listening to a message, a part of a message by Adrian Rogers. How many of you remember that name, Adrian Rogers? Not Aaron, that's a different, I don't think they're even brothers. But Adrian, a famous Southern Baptist preacher, of course is now home in heaven. But I listened to a bit from, from him this past week and, and he said this, he said, this may shock some of you. He says, but hang on. Reading your Bible doesn't necessarily help you to know God. He said, going to seminary, getting a degree in Greek and Hebrew, putting a big Bible under your arm, and walking around with a spiritual look on your face does not mean you know God. Even going to church, being around people who are godly, doesn't necessarily mean you know God. And he said this, even singing, Singing, oh, how I love Jesus, doesn't mean you love him or know him any better than, uh, than the unsaved. He says, I know of many people, young men who've gone to seminary, putting a big Bible under their arm, walking around campus with a halo over their head. And they sin and do wicked things and stray from the Lord. And verse 46 of Luke 6 says, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and what? Do not the things that I say. We can go to church every Sunday and never really know him. So the truth is, we are to not just educate ourselves. And he, he knows well that many of these Hebrew believers know the, especially the Old Testament scriptures well. He wants his church and the churches in the first century as they were scattered abroad. He says, I want you to leave knowing Christ. Education might, might fill your brain with facts about God, but to know him, here's the key, you must obey him. That's the key. If you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. So how are you doing? Living the life of Christ. Are you keeping his commandments? And so really, this, this book is convictional. We come tonight to the subject of favoritism. And uh, he, uh, he goes after a topic in the first 13 verses of chapter 2 that almost make it seem like he's been visiting our churches here today and uh, maybe even visited Bible Baptist Church. God knows what we need, and it always comes at the right time. And this is an exhaustive, it's a transcending, it's a complete book. It's written that transcends every generation. It's written for us. Well, we've read the verses, the first 13 at least, in chapter 2. And the first thing we notice uh, about uh, really the first verse is that he's calling his, his half-brother, of course he grew up in the same home as the Lord Jesus Christ, vastly different dads, right? The Lord Jesus Christ uh, came uh, here and he was uh, all God and all man. His father, of course, Father God in heaven. And James grew up in that home, same mother, Mary. And so if anybody knew Christ, it was James. You see, you can kid a kid and con a con and fool a fool, but you cannot, rarely can you kid your family. Did you know your family knows the deal about you? They do. James, look, look, look what he says. It's one of the greatest affirmations, I think, about the deity of Christ by anybody who knew Christ well. His brother, his half-brother says this, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Lord of glory. 
I mean, if anybody would have known that there had been one fault, one day where the Lord would have slipped up in the family context, it would have been James. But he looked back to the life of, his, of Christ, his brother, and the Lord of glory, and exclaims, this is the Lord of glory. I know who he is. And then he moves quickly from a, really a declaration of God's deity, and he draws us to the example of Christ. Don't do not have an attitude of criticism and judgmentalism and prejudice because the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who grew up in my home, never had that spirit at all. My. You think of how, how far Jesus came to walk among men and the place he chose to grow up in. It was a very humble, a humble existence. He emptied himself and became a servant, took upon him the form of flesh, a servant. And James moves to the idea of his own example as the basis of this teaching. You, you dare not have the faith of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and somehow cop an attitude that says you're better than somebody else because the Lord Jesus Christ I know that I grew up with, never had that example. He chose to be born in a humble home, meager means. I mean, he could have chosen any place, right? He set aside the pre-incarnate glory of heaven. And he wasn't a rich man's boy. He was born to Joseph in Mary poverty. He, you think about this, the Lord, he, he, he lived borrowing things. I remember telling our missionary parents, my missionary parents, Dad, I'm so tired of hand-me-downs and borrowed stuff. Every time we come on furlough, we're borrowing a car and living in people in missionary homes that we're borrowing. We're living our life just, we're so poor. I thought about the Lord himself. He was born in poverty. Think about what he borrowed. He borrowed a stable in which he was born. Borrowed loaves and fish to do a miracle. He borrowed a boat. Remember that? He borrowed resting places. He said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the Lord of glory we're talking about. He borrowed a coin to teach a truth. We were walking with the senior saints. We called them the CK55, and we had a great time at Bay Breeze. We miss some of you. We have a little bit. We know who you are. They're 55 and older. But we had a great group, had a great time. And in the parking lot, I uh, saw something shining. On the, on the, you're, you're getting ahead of me here. Uh, but it, it wasn't a diamond. It was a dime. And I said, honey, uh, I, I grew up in a home where we don't walk past pennies, much less dimes. And I reached out and snatched that thing up. It's in my pocket. Uh, but the Lord borrowed everything, right? It is, it's, he had a borrowed donkey. He, he, in fact, he, he, he borrowed a cross. That cross did not belong to him. It belonged to Barnabas. He borrowed a tomb. No wonder James says, you dare not, you dare not have the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with some kind of attitude of predominance or preeminence. You must have a humble, humble spirit. Have you noticed? Now, it's not bad to think about security and safety, but sometimes there, uh, we live in gated communities with codes on the gates, and we, we love those of our own age or younger. We sit Amongst those we share common interests in. That's just natural. We gravitate to those with our own skin color or social strata, have the same loves we do, 
We have similar philosophies and politics and schooling. We like those who like us on Facebook. Churches are more known today by what they exclude by more than what they include or whom they include. We just have a natural tendency, as one of my friends used to say, to glom on to people who love us, and like us, and look like us. And so we say things like, be careful, that church has a Spanish ministry or an addictions ministry. Look out, that church is going to be full of folks that maybe don't look like you or speak like you. And we think about the Lord's own, or, <laughs> and we have more than just those things that kind of set us off when we think about going to churches and choosing churches. But I, I think of the Lord's own example. He spoke, he, he spoke, listen, he spoke to just about everybody. You think about it. Who did the Lord speak to? Well, he certainly spoke to the Romans and the centurions and the religious elite. Who else did he speak to? He spoke to children, didn't he? And he spoke to women and to men. He addressed fishermen, the elderly, young children, lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors. So James says, chapter 2, remember, this is our faith, and it was practiced by our founder first, his example. He's not asking you to do something he did not do. You live in life as Christ lived, with an attitude, without an attitude of favoritism or partiality. Uh, when's the last time? Uh, just think about it. I'm, I'm trying to be as practical as James is. When's the last time you reached out to a neighbor or a friend or someone in church that doesn't look like you? Isn't in your same category. Uh, I, whatever that is. And, and when's the last time you've called perhaps a shut-in or asked to babysit for a young mom or a, said to a deacon, I'd like to give my money some of my money, to be a blessing to the poorest people in church. And all God's school teachers said, Amen. <laughs> When's the last time you thought about moving outside of your box to helping others? So his, uh, James tells us, first of all, in chapter 2, that his deity is affirmed, his example is noted. Now he brings us to an illustration from his own day. Verses 2 through 4, we've read them, but let's read them again. What if there comes into your assembly a man with gold ring? Really, the idea in the Greek is gold-fingered. He probably had more than one gold ring on. He was dressing kind of ostentatiously, kind of fancy-like. So there comes into your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly, fine apparel. There also comes the same day, same meeting, same assembly, a poor man in vile raiment. Well, did you know that in James's time, first century church, there was a lot of poor people coming to church? Why? Well, there was persecution, first of all, that made many of these wage earners lose their job, and so they were destitute. And we know that the issue of poverty was a big deal, Romans chapter 6. There was a whole contingent of men called deacons, at least we call them that, that were really assigned to take care of the, the widows and those that were poor and really make sure that there was a fair distribution of food and goods to these who were so poor. And so the church certainly had many that were in poverty. Celsus, the Roman philosopher, 
in the first century or second describes this new movement of the church. Here's what he says about them. Here's his observation about the church. He said, they remind me of a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nests like frogs in a swamp, holding their conventions in the corner of a mud. Wow, that's not very, that's not very encouraging, is it, about what the church... So he's just saying they're just poor people huddled together in masses and doing the best they can, but they're just really unsavory. They're poor, and, they're, and yet they, they have, a, have a way of meeting together. And, and he said, that's, my, that's what the world thinks of us. So when the wealthy come... Uh, or the famous, the well-heeled come, well-dressed, everyone gravitated towards them and cared little for the others. It hasn't changed much over the centuries. Those presumed as wealthy when they visit get the most attention and favor. The man in this illustration has uh, goodly apparel, verse 2, uh, that could be, uh, means just simply well-dressed, well-put-together, sharp, fancy, maybe even a little bit overdressed. One man said this, some go to church to close their eyes while others go to eye the clothes. And I don't know if that's true. I don't think that's true here. Uh, I think uh, most of you ladies are glad that the Arab hats are gone, but I don't know about that. But there used to be a time where we did dress up. Now, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with dressing up and go to church. Amen? Thank you for those three. There's nothing. This is a, a, a very, very different trend today. Right? There is. It's okay. We dress up for funerals, special occasions, graduations. We dress up, at, of course, to go to church. I think the Lord deserves our best. Even if our best is a pair of overalls. You know, clean them up. Come to church if that's the best you got. We're not here to impress, dressing to impress one another, are we? In fact, J. Vernon McGee tells a story when he was a young pastor just getting started he said, there in California, he said, I used to dress to the nines. He said, I thought that was the way to impress my congregation. He said, I had the three-piece suit. He said, I had this big, beautiful top hat back in the day. It's been a few years. And then he said, one day, a couple came to our church who, he said, I knew who they were. They had a tremendous, they were very, very wealthy in the community. They visited. He said, I noticed as they sat in our church, as they visited, that he just wore common clothes. Even though he had a bank account that would outstrip most anybody, he said they just wore common clothes. He said, that's unusual. He talked to him after, and he understood that you don't have to dress up to impress people. God knows our hearts. Obviously, I think we ought to do right, come to church and dress, look nice, as nice as we can, and, and dress up. I, I was just, uh, and I know trends and fashions change, and there's... Nothing wrong with being casual, and, and there's a time and a place for that. I was, uh, this past Monday, going to a board meeting with 30 pastors in Indianapolis. And I knew that as soon as I get off the plane, there'd be a meeting, and, and I, so, I, so I went dressed for the meeting. And I knew these guys. I'm new to the board, but I knew the guys. And all of them I knew would be dressed up for this board meeting on a Monday. So I'm standing in line at security at the airport. And I thought to myself... Once in a while I do that. I thought to myself, I'm just going to look around and see how many ties, Randy might know about this, how many ties there are on people in line. 45 minutes I had to think about this at the airport in Atlanta. 
I want to take a guess how many ties there were on people waiting to go. And there was all kinds of people, rich, poor, tall, short. I mean, every strap. Uh, they were a lot of them coming back from the masters there. And so there saw a lot of green hats and green sweaters. But I looked around and I got a little bit, I said, I'm the only guy in here with a tie on. I thought, boy, the tie has lost its, lost its favor. Then I got on the airplane, still looking around for ties. And I found one more tie, and I went up to him. Guess what? He was another preacher going to the same meeting. <laughs> I don't think necessarily the exterior. Lord tells us it's not what we put on. There's certainly a place for dressing up, but it is what's in our heart that matters. But there, there was this, it always has been this tendency to gravitate towards those that... Uh, are well-heeled, so to speak, and dress well, and have the, uh, the assumption that we assume that they have great wealth or money. And so in the church there, we, we see that there was that immediate attraction and almost to the neglect of those that didn't have that kind of spirit or attitude or clothing. And the Lord says, listen, there's, the, there's God's divinity affirmed, his, of course, his example confirmed, but then we see that our prejudices are exposed in verses 2 and 3. You, you, what you've done is if you, you've given undue, <laughs> undue attention to those that seem to be, or perhaps are, wealthy. In fact, you see there that little phrase, you, you say to them, sit thou here in a good place, and I just want to tell you the first three rows in our church are the best place. Amen. You don't have to say that. But uh, stand here or sit down here in a good... And you say to the poor, stand over there. I don't even have room for you to sit, but stand over there in the corner and, and, and you don't even... <laughs> or sit... Un, you don't, don't sit on my footstool. No. You can sit by it or under it. And that's how the treatment... He's using a real-life application... And then the idea of clothing here is vile or shabby, common, even filthy or dirty. He's reading one commentary about this. He says, in that day and time, obviously the hygiene wasn't, isn't or wasn't like it is today, isn't like it is today. There was obviously a lack of some, some lack of, of just uh, the, the plumbing and all that, and so they had to go to a river if they wanted to, to clean up a little bit. And so it wasn't the same, but these, uh, these folks often, after working hard, didn't didn't have the same appearance, uh, the poor folks at least. And then the fine or expensive, that's the word gay there, fine, expensive, gaudy, or glitzy. I mentioned gold-fingered. is a So somebody comes and just really dressed to the nines. And in some churches, people of different ethnic backgrounds, race, financial strata, standing, are treated differently. First Timothy six seventeen, Paul reminds Timothy to speak to those in Ephesus, to instruct or charge those that are rich in this world that they be not. Here's the word or words: high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, which giveth all things, giveth us all things richly to enjoy. Verse eighteen of that same text says they are to be rich in good works ready to distribute, willing to communicate or give, investing in heaven. I, I, I love the idea, whatever God has given us, 
It isn't really for us. If God has given you a teaching gift, it, it, it isn't really for you. It is to be used in the context of, of the assembly of God's people in order to help them. If God has given you money, it isn't for you. <laughs> we were encouraged this past Wednesday by Michael Blue, which is Ron Blue's son, by way of his own testimony. And he referred to some of the, uh, some of the folks like John Wesley and others that lived there even Mueller, who lived their lives, lots of money passed through their hands, but they weren't clutching to it or finding their security. And when they died, they had very little in their bank account. If God gives you something, it is for the, the, really the promotion of his work and his people. That's why God gives us gifts, <laughs> not that we might hoard them. And But they were saying to those who were very poor, you can come over here and sit by my footstool. You're not worthy uh, to be given the place of prominence in our church. I wonder how we treat our guests and visitors who may not be exactly like us. I wonder how God would rate our church in terms of friendliness and kindness to those that may not appear to be like us, that don't wear the ties of may not polish their shoes, may be a, from a different country or economic strata. How well do we treat them? Bill Hungerpillar, who's now with the Lord, most of you older folks would, would know that name. Bill and Louise shut in for a few years. Uh, Bill had a great love and started Carver Institute. At least he was a great instructor there, president for a while. Loved the African-Americans, and one of his students was Tony Evans. Anybody know that name? Tony Evans. He preaches at a church in Dallas with over 9,000 today. Tony and Bill were buddies for a while, of course, student, teacher, professor. And years ago, years ago now, it is my understanding, as Bill told the story, he brought Tony to a church whose, if I were to give you the name, you would, some of you probably even attended that church way back in the day. And of course, Tony's a African-American, and, and, and Bill's desire was to have him join the church. And back in the day, and it hasn't been that many days ago, here in Georgia, not very far away from here, this church said, no, we, we, don't, we don't want your kind here. Of course, Tony took it graciously, and later I think they did, deacons did decide to bring him in as a member. But how sad, amen? How tragic that we would cold shoulder any group of people. Sometimes a new family moves into our neighborhood. It could be Muslims, it could be another country, whatever, not like us. Maybe uh, they have a different philosophy of schooling their children, or whatever, and we look at our spouse and we say, well, there goes the neighborhood, <laughs> as if somehow who we are in the eyes of God is better than who they are. Do you know that at the foot of the cross it's common ground? And we need to understand how important it is that we don't have this prejudicial attitude. Does this kind of spirit still exist? Sure does. Well, we've been encouraged by uh, the deity of Christ, His example confirmed. Our prejudices have been exposed a little bit. God is, 
uh, through James opening up the window to our own heart. And then there's a warning expressed. Look at verse 4. Are you not then partial in yourselves? So hard to say, well, I'm not a big sinner. But do you discriminate? Are, are you prejudicial? Do you play favorites? Are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of what kind of thoughts? Say it. Evil thoughts. That word for evil is used three times in the book of James, and this is the strongest form of it. You are becoming evil. Given The word is poneros. You have vicious, hurtful intentions causing destructive effects. Yes, we've had all sorts of sinners that come to our church, and certainly we are all sinners. But this is often one of these sins that we think is acceptable. It's just a discourtesy, maybe, and our comments are considered funny almost. But the Lord says this is evil. In fact, he says later in verse 9, if you have respect to persons, you're committing what? Sin. And are convinced of the law as transgressors. So he reminds us, he warns us, that this is not something to be trifled with or to be allowed in your life. If you're in the habit of criticizing any people group, in or out of the church, stop it. God says, that's evil, that's wrong, and you're transgressing. Number five, there's a reminder given given to us in verses 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brethren, hearken. Hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? You know why it was so hard for rich people to come to Christ? Anybody have an idea? They trust in their stuff and they have no need of God. Often the Lord would say it's, it's, it's so difficult. Three times in the gospel he says it's as difficult for a rich man to get into heaven as a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And some say, well, there was this gate and you know, the camel had to take off all, his, all the equipment and the, and the carriage and then get on its knee. We have, no, we have no historical proof that there was ever a gate called the needle's gate. Truly, this is hyperbole and God uses it on purpose. It is harder for a man who's trusting in his riches to get saved as it would be to push a camel, uh, the Asian or Persians would say, an elephant through the eye of an actual needle because they love and are contented with what they have. And yet how often we are drawn into their orb as thinking, if I could only be like them. You might, you might have very little tonight, very little, and yet you have the Lord. Praise God for that, because often, often, as soon as we start to amass things, we're content that we don't need God. This is the point. He says this, verse 6, you've despised the poor. But who is it, really? Who is it that, is, that are oppressing you? It is the rich men. It is the politically, uh, the politically powerful. The Lord was drawn into judgment by the religious leaders who walked about with these long robes and phylacteries and played the trumpet when they, when they gave at the temple. They loved to be seen of men. It was that group that falsely accused and put Christ to death. Poor people, common people, the Bible says, heard him and loved him, heard him gladly. 
So it is, he's saying, why are you preferentially treating those who are rich? Those are the ones that are most apt to persecute you and draw you before the judgment seats. They're the blasphemers that, uh, that, that take that worthy name by which you're called and drag it through the dirt. Now certainly, it wouldn't be right for me to preach a sermon like this and not remind you there were wealthy Christians. Right? There were. Can you think of one? Joseph of Arimathea was one, right? And certainly Philemon uh, was a, an estate holder. Others we could list in the Bible who were very wealthy. Yes, God can do that. Nicodemus came, uh, a ruler. So, so we know that God can and does uh, reach down and pick up politically powerful folks and folks with great wealth. But as a rule, these are those that oppose the church, hate what we're doing, and, and James reminds uh, the church of that. Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you're called? If you fulfill the royal law, verse 8, according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. And so it is, he, he ends kind of with this thought. He says, listen, pay attention to this reminder, verse 5, that God has chosen. What? Who has God chosen? God has chosen the poor of this world and calls them rich. Tonight, maybe some college students, or maybe even you, and you're realizing your bank account is never enough. Well, understand something. God's picked you for poverty. <laughs> Not that we ought to just uh, relish in our, on our, in our little means, but he's telling you God is, that's God's plan to pick the poor and make them rich spiritually. It's his plan, and he's saying this, ends the section with a reminder that discriminatory attitudes are sinful, not just some acceptable trifle or discourtesy. It's wrong to say, evil to say, when a, when a person that you don't necessarily have a lot in common with comes to church and you give them a cold shoulder, it's, it's wrong to say or to treat them with an attitude, and he says that as he ends, if you have respect, verse 9, to persons, you commit sin. Convinced of the law as transgressor, but whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Instead of minimizing this as just a little foible, he lifts it up as a great sin. And he brings up adultery and murder, and he says this is on that same plane as that. Discrimination is as sinful as breaking the whole law. When we worked in Brazil, and I and I kind of close it up tonight with this illustration. When we worked in Brazil as missionaries, um, of course we, it's good to have Joe and Hallie here tonight on their way to Chile, but we, we, we got to the mission field and the Lord directed us to the Amazon region. And we didn't come from families of means when we left Kansas, for sure. My dad and granddad were farmers and we didn't have a lot, subsistence living basically, but when we got to Brazil... We were considered rich because of our skin color. Uh, we were Americans, so we had to have a lot. And in comparison to those folks, we did. I can remember uh, as we began to, to, to minister along the river uh, and to these little churches that met, met often in, in mud structures with thatched roofs, I can still think about this. I can still, in my mind, smell the smell of poverty along the Amazon River in those churches. 
I can smell the mud floors and the mud walls. I can even smell the smell in my mind, the smell of a thatched roof. And the services, such a blessing tonight uh, to have the Gillises minister to us. And we've just had, we've just been privileged here. We're sitting on soft pews and air-conditioned building and but those little, a lot of times, the little ones at least had to sit on the mud floor, the dusty mud floor. The adults had chairs, sometimes rough-hewn structures, like half, half logs cut. We would sit there, and I can remember we'd have no instrumentation. There's no piano, no organ. Sometimes if, if somebody was wealthy enough to own a guitar and knew how to play it, they would bring that in. My mom would play the accordion. But I can still smell the smell of poverty. And yet I think about this. There was one who emptied himself and became poor. I'm here tonight because the richest man I know became poor that I might become rich. We stopped one time, and I've told you this story, in a little church that had a lot of people who had leprosy. And I knew, even as a teenager, I knew that leprosy is not that communicable. It's not. It's hard to contract leprosy by a casual touch. And yet the pastor that night, a Brazilian man in his 80s, had leprosy. And I could tell. He was blind and his hands were bandaged up. Leprosy affects the nerve endings. And he had heard that I was there. A visitor was there. And so he came. He came. He was led to where I was. And there was joy in his heart. And he said, I'm so glad that you have come this far to see us. And he reached out that bandaged, leprous hand to shake my hand. Inside There was this rebel spirit. There was this spirit of prejudice. And there was this recoil of my heart where I thought, I am am not better than, but I'm healthier. I don't want to be affected or touched. That battle that James is talking about. We all face it. I may not be as good as, but I'm better than. That went through my heart and as a teenager. And I battled with that just a second. Then I reached out and I grabbed that bandaged hand and I said, thank you in Portuguese. Thank you. I walked away and I thought about that day, beloved brethren, We're all just saved the same way. When I came to the cross of Christ and there, (laughs) I reached out my vile, corrupt, bandaged hand and heart to God and I said, would you save me? In loving kindness, Jesus came. My soul in mercy to reclaim. Now on a higher plane I stand. In love 
He rescued me. We're not too good to reach that low, are we? If Jesus came that far and left his neighborhood and became poor. I'm so glad that God didn't say, listen, I'm too good for you. And you're too evil for me. You're not good enough for me to save. I'm so glad he made the journey. Took upon him the form of a servant. Was made, and I'm so glad he emptied himself, became poor. That I, through his grace, might become rich. What a great reminder is James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you.